Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. Welcome back to Cara. And our topic is how hell fits in. Uh, last week we talked about heaven and uh, different things about the heaven project, about the way that the Lord is developing heaven. So how does hell fit in with this whole picture? That's what we'll be meditating on tonight. I understand from surveys that a lot more people in our world believe in heaven than believe in hell. It's a difficult topic and it's hard to see uh, what's the mercy of the Lord, like how does, how does love or is the Lord angry at those people? How does that fit in? So we'll be looking at different scriptures and seeing how hell fits in this evening. And I invite you to join me on that journey, if you will, good friends. So let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of the Word, the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us, Lord. Please open the pages of your Word to us. Explain to us who you are and tell us about your love and your mercy. Amen. Amen. Thank you, good friends. Good to be with you. Sending love out to those of you online and getting the audio podcast and on the phone. It's uh, very nice to be with you on this beautiful evening here. Uh, I want to, um, yeah, I, I think what we'll do is we'll read some scriptures and then we'll talk about them in a kind of structural way. What I'd like to start with is actually in the New Testament, the book of Acts, there's an interesting statement there about an Old Testament story. You may be familiar with the story of Moses and Pharaoh, and I wish we had 18 hours and could read the whole, you know, all 15 chapters of the story. It's an awesome story. Uh, uh, we'll just be dipping into it tonight. But there's an interesting summary in Acts about that story of where the Egyptians, as you may remember, the children of Israel had been captive there for 400 years, and then Moses was called by God and told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh didn't let go the first time. He didn't go, let go the second time, third time, fourth. It got up to 10 plagues, and finally he let them go. And then he changed his mind and attacked them. And, uh, and look at what Acts chapter 7, verse 7, says about this. It's just an interesting little statement. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. Mm. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So what that's about is that the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians. And what this says about that whole story in the Old Testament is that that was a judgment on the Egyptians. Generally, when I've looked at that story, I think, oh, this is a story about the children of Israel. This is a story about how Moses becomes a powerful leader uh, leads the people out of their slavery into wandering in the wilderness and then finally getting to the holy land, the land of milk and honey. But this says that story is also the story of a judgment on the Egyptians. And so if it's a judgment, we can read this in some sense as telling us something about uh, the path to hell as well as the path to heaven. You know, both are being discussed. So let's turn to the left hand, all the way to the second book in the Bible, uh, Exodus, and let's look okay. at uh, chapter, 
five, I think. Let's look at chapter five. Now, by this point, Moses had already been called, and Pharaoh was the head of the Egyptians, and Moses had been told to go say to Pharaoh, let my people go. So look at um, the beginning of chapter 5 there. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Aha. Uh -huh. So this is the very first time that Moses says those <laughs> words to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron. Aaron's his brother and sort of spokesperson. And uh, so what is, does Pharaoh say? You've given me many years of great service. I thank you uh, kindly, and uh, sure, you can go, of course, you're free citizens. What does he say? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Hmm. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, and uh, so how did, what did they respond? So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. It's interesting that the children of Israel are saying they're going to be in trouble with God if they don't do this. And what is he saying? Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Yeah, these were slaves and they were building all these things and doing projects. Very handy to have this huge slave labor. And he says, you know, no, go back to work. You know, that, that's my answer. And then he uh, says some things. We can skip over this a little bit. But he actually says, you may remember this, that he tells them they have, now they have to make bricks without, you know, he's not going to supply materials for them. They have to get their own materials to make it. And he doubles their workload. And... Uh, so they were very upset about this, and, um, and the, the officers of the children of Israel, in verse 20, they come and meet Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Yes, you've made everything much, much worse by going into Pharaoh. You know, what were you thinking? going in there saying, let my people go. Everything's gotten worse. So did Moses say, don't worry, everything's going to go well. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Now, is Moses displaying tremendous strength as a leader right now? He's a little wobbly, isn't he? He's sort of, oh, this is not going well. I, I don't like how this is going. And, and so he says, you know, he accuses the Lord of bringing trouble on the people. And he wonders, and, and why did you send me? Or it might be, why did you send me? Or something, but uh, either case. And go on. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And listen to this. Neither have you delivered your people at all. At all. So this is your great salvation. You've doubled our work. You know, you've done nothing that you promised to do. And so I imagine Moses goes home having told the Lord, you know, how it stands and figures, okay, we won't have any more of that madness. We'll just, you know, put up with our slavery and everything. But the Lord says to Moses, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. 
That's what he says in 6 verse 1, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And with a strong hand, he'll let them go and he'll actually drive them out of the land. Uh, and I just want to skip over to uh, verse 12. And what does Moses say there? Ah. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Yes. So uh, you hear what he's saying? <laughs> Look, I can't even get my own people to listen to me. You really think the king of Egypt, this huge, powerful person, is going to say, oh, I'm so sorry for holding you all in slavery. I've seen the light. You know, I'll, I'll let you go, even though you're unbelievable financial resource for our kingdom. Uh, no, of course he doesn't say that. And then over the following chapters, as you may know, 10 of these plagues, bang, bang, bang. And at first, Pharaoh's servants are able to duplicate the plagues, you know, turn the Nile to blood or cause, you know, for a little while, they're sort of running with them. And it looks like they're just as powerful as Moses is with his miracles and everything. But after a while, he starts to get out ahead of them and they can't, they can't duplicate it. They can't do the miracle. And, and the miracles are kind of amazing because they always come. This is what first started to clue me into what was going on in this story, because they don't come in sort of a terrible sequence. They go for a while and then they stop. And then they go ask Pharaoh, so what do you think? Are you going to let us go now? And then he says, no. So then they hit him again. You see what I mean? It's trying to turn him around. That's actually what's going on, is it's trying to turn Pharaoh around. And part of this judgment is that Pharaoh has to say no 11 times. In fact, he has to say no 10 times and then attack them. And that's what it takes to judge Pharaoh. This is the judgment that's part of what we're reading is the judgment of Pharaoh. And so it, it, God just sort of frivolously cast him aside. He gives him 10 chances to turn it around. Every one of the plagues. And, then, and every time Pharaoh says, oh, uncle, stop, you know. Moses goes to the Lord and they stop. And then he says, well, I changed my mind. You can't go, you know. And oh, he did it again. So then you hit him with the next one, hit him with the next one. But it's every effort to try to turn him around. But he doesn't turn around, as you know. And then finally, it's when it hits the firstborn, you know, it just really hits home. This is not about the animals or other people somewhere else suffering. It comes right into his own household and it really, it really hits home. And so he finally contacts Moses and tells him, get out, all of you, get out. And just as the Lord said, he was going to drive you know, Pharaoh will drive you out of the land. And he drove him out of the land, okay? But look at 14. So we cut a little ahead in the story here. And they left. You remember they despoiled the Egyptians, the children of Israel despoiled the Egyptians. They took jewelry and so forth from them on the way out. And uh, 14 verse 5. <clears throat> now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Amazing. It cost him his firstborn, but he forgets. Like, are we out of our minds? What, you know, I mean, he said, go, leave. I'm through with you, you know, get out of here. And then he says, 
wait, what have, what have we done? You know, he has rejector's remorse or whatever you call that. <laughs> and, um, and so he, he says, what have we done? Go on. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and mm. all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. Mm. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside pi Hahiroth before nice. Baal-Zephon. Yes, and so they're, they're <laughs> very impressive. The, um, so he's chasing them and pursuing them, uh, and this is very important, like, he rejected them, and, and he had 10 chances to turn around, didn't take any of them. But then even after he'd said, leave, and they left. It's a very important detail in the story that he then, his judgment is still not complete. The judge, you know the judgment is complete when he ends up in the water, and the water corresponds to hell. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So Pharaoh doesn't, end, he's still not in the water, even though he's done all this so far. But it's when he attacks, when he's so single-minded about it, that he's willing, you know, even though he's lost his own firstborn and everything, and everybody in the kingdom is grieving, he's still, no, I want to get, I hate these people with everything in my being. Let's get the chariots, we're going to kill them all, you know. Uh, he just becomes absolutely single-minded about it. And this is part of his judgment. And so they bear down on them, and the children of Israel are terrified, and the Lord protects them. They walk through the water, as you remember, and then the water closes. And um, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and all the water comes back. Uh, let's look at verse 27 there. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. Mm. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Mm. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much, not so much as one of them remained. Now you notice that the only Egyptians who ended up killed, every single Egyptian who went on the attack ended up in the water, but none of the others, just the ones who attacked. And part of my point is, that in order to go to hell, you have to be so single-minded. You reject 10 efforts to turn you around, and then you attack the good with everything you've got. Uh, it's the only way to do it. Short of that, you don't end up in the drink. You know? That's what it takes uh, to, to achieve that condemnation. Um, go on. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is a picture of protection. A wall often has an idea of protection. Wall also means the literal sense of scripture. And they, ha they have this. Uh, so it's the same thing that is deadly to the Egyptians is protection. It's amazing. How does the Lord do that? That in the same story. And what is, let me just ask you, what has happened? We'll see a little bit about it in a moment. What's happened to Moses? while this is going on. Has he been stuck in neutral? Is he just idling out in the parking lot? 
he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. So at the beginning, he was a little shaky about, Lord, what are you doing? You haven't delivered us at all. And by the end, he's like, pow, you know, and he's ready to lead the people through the wilderness, through anything. And he was just a shepherd before this and someone who was running away from the law. You know, so he didn't feel sort of innately strong before this happened. It's amazing that the, the scripture shows us that the same events strengthen the good and weaken the evil. And the attack of Pharaoh has no negative effect. I mean, it scares the children of Israel, but they're fine. They're fine. It's really amazing. I think the reason the Lord allows the attack is because the attack is what the evil need to do to get clear on the, no, this is my choice. I'm 100% about it. Uh, but it only benefits and strengthens the good. And you watch them side by side. Pharaoh's going downhill. Moses is going uphill. Pharaoh's getting weaker, worse and worse. Moses is getting stronger and stronger in the same exchange. It's really amazing to me. So let's read the last little verses here. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Yes, no kidding. Out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Mm. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. When they began, they didn't have, so the people also were developed because they didn't have that much confidence. <coughs> they weren't exactly sure who the Lord was, and they weren't exactly sure who Moses was or whether he was on the level of now they know that Moses has really become something. Uh, so uh, think about the crucifixion. You know, we went through Easter a few weeks ago. Uh, in the crucifixion, do you see that similar? All these things in the Old Testament are about Jesus. You know, that's what we read in the New Testament. And so is this a story about how hell comes with everything it's got, you know, to try to attack? And the Lord makes 10 efforts. He pleads with people, you know, I wish I would gather you under my wings, you know, turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. After 10 times, no, they're determined. But what has to happen is they have to attack. They have to be allowed to attack because that's their clarity. That's their moment of like, okay, that's their judgment. It looks like they've hurt the Lord. It looks like they've killed the Lord, but actually he's stronger than ever and, and rises up eternally. And so that's another picture and finally, let's look real quick at the complete other end of your Bible in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 19, verse 19 and 20. You know, everybody thinks about Armageddon and is so terrifying and everything. Um, so here is the whole show right here. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 in Revelation 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is a picture of the Lord and good, good people who surround him. And you see again that feeling of like, I want to attack the good. I want to attack them. I want to take them down. And the Lord allows that for their process. And verse 20. Then the beast was captured. Oh, I see. That lasted a real long, that was a real, real dangerous threat they posed. Go on. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Nobody thinks that's not a picture of hell, although people misunderstand what the nature of being in hell is. But uh, this is their condemnation. Same deal, Right. All sorts of efforts to turn them around that have happened before this. 
Uh, and sometimes in the book of Revelation, it even says some people repented of their deeds and, you know, they changed their direction because of this, the upheaval that was going on. These people are very clear. I hate the Lord. I hate people who love the Lord. I want to kill them. And so that's what takes them down. With that, they're cast alive into this lake of fire. And the lake of fire has to do with evil. You can't really call it love, but it's like that lust or that desire. We'll talk about that a little more. And uh, the brimstone is, is about falsity, about bad teachings, bad thoughts, and so on. And look at verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Sword has to do with divine truth. In other words, it's like the wall of water on either side. You know, that truth is, is what, uh, you know, fulfills the judgment. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Yes, that means something nicer than it sounds like, but we won't dwell on that right now. Uh, so, so, all right. So that's a little picture of the judgment. So I wanted to get that right out there at the beginning, that the way you go to hell, if, if you're not a chapter 19 yet, the Lord will just wait. And sometimes he waits for a thousand years, you know. But it's only when people get absolutely crystal clear that they're 100% opposed to the Lord and to what is good, and they attack. The attack is not successful. The good are not hurt. But it does harm the people who are attacking, and they go down. So you see what I mean? Crucifixion, book of Revelation, Exodus in the beginning. This is the message of Scripture. This is about, I find it reassuring, because until then, there's every effort to try to turn people around. Um, what else do we want to do here? That's so much fun. All right, let's start just reading scripture. So let's go back to the books of Moses. The fifth book of Moses back there is Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, so on. See if you can find your way to Deuteronomy. We'll look at chapter 32. We read this not too long ago. I wanted to see it again. <clears throat> 32 verse 22, speaking of fire. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. Mm. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, this mention of the mountains is very interesting to me. I, I think, uh, okay, let's hit pause here for a moment. I want to show you a graphic here for those of you who are getting the video, and I'll describe it for those who are getting the audio. But I want to... Uh, very simple graphic that I've put together. Uh, there's a horizontal dotted line across the middle of the chart. And up above, I've got a red square in the top left. And then the middle right is a blue square. And then in the center, just above the dotted line, is a green rectangle, not a square, but a rectangle. And then below it, there's a mirror image, a green one right in the center below that, and then a blue one lower down to the right, and then a red one all the way down on the left. And one of the things, uh, I, I don't know if this will make sense to you, but one of the things I want to say is that Scripture, uh, it seems like there's not much information in Scripture, but if we know how to read correspondences, not much information specifically about the map of heaven and hell and stuff like that, but if you know how to read correspondences, there's a lot of information. And one of the things that you'll see is that the highest area, I'll write in red up here by the red one, Mountains, these are called mountains. And what word always goes with mountains in scripture? Hills. Hills, that's right. So I'll do hills in blue. So do you see what I mean? Uh, 
And it's interesting that the uh, corresponding blue rectangle down below the line, in other words, the hellish version of that, is also called hills, and the red rectangle all the way down at the bottom is also referred to as mountains. So did you hear what that just said here? Can we read that again? Uh, it shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Yeah, now this is about the lowest hell, mountains. So burn to the lowest hell. Yeah, you see what I mean? This is called mountains all the way down here. And that's because mountains have to do with love. Either a good kind of love, the celestial mountains, or the mirror image, an evil kind of love, all the way down at the bottom. And then the hills are less of that. The hills have more to do with, with truth, and they also have to do with loving the neighbor. Let me just write up here what these different loves are. Some of you will be very familiar with this. But uh, the highest heaven can basically be summed up as loving the Lord and also as love itself. Uh, and that's why I've made it red. That's all the way up to the left of the chart. And then a step below that over to the right is loving the neighbor. I'll write that in blue. And it is also truth. Now, it's interesting that loving the neighbor and truth go together, you know, uh, but this is how Swedenborg describes it. And then the opposite of those in the, the lowest hell, the opposite of that is loving ourselves. And I'll describe this in a little bit. Uh, and then this is the blue one right above it, the hills, is loving the world. And this is also falsity. The blue one is falsity and the uh, red one is evil down here. Loving the world not in a lovely way. And not loving the world in a lovely way either. These are terms that Swedenborg uses, and we'll read the scriptural basis of these terms tonight. Uh, we'll be getting to those passages in the New Testament. But what he means by love of self is not, as I've said before, taking a bubble bath at the end of a difficult day. Uh, he means that you uh, view yourself. You know what a kid's what a kids play? I'm the king of the castle. You're the dirty rascal. You know, like, there are people in this world. Swedenborg says it lurks in all of us, but there's only certain people who have the wealth or the power to really manifest it. And not that we all would if we had the chance, because the Lord's always working to give us a conscience and so on. But when we uh, manifest this, one characteristic is that there are people, are there not, have we not seen in our lifetimes and so on, that there are people, heads of state, who view the whole nation that they're in charge of as something to serve them. It's really, really amazing. But there are people who feel that way, who feel that all the wealth and resources of the nation exists to make me comfortable. This, this whole thing is just for all of you to serve. You know, that's, that's what Swedenborg means by love of self. It's when, and you see it from the opposite of loving the Lord. It's the opposite of loving the Lord. It's placing, rather than placing the Lord above all and loving the Lord above all, it's loving yourself above all and everything else is secondary. So it doesn't mean you don't love other people, but you only love them if they flatter you, agree with your opinion. As soon as they don't agree with your opinion, 
yeah, get rid of that, you know, and hated him all the time anyway. And, and uh, that's the sort of nature that this uh, love of self has. You see it in these sort of dark figures in movies and so on of uh, just people who do, do not care. It's ruthless. It's absolutely ruthless because it doesn't really see other people as alive or valuable or what, you know, killing them is not a big, not a big deal. If it serves you, that's what's important. And so a lot of this, what I'm talking about tonight, is when push comes to shove. You know, everybody has some of that. And, you know, we have that in ourselves. And it's very useful when you're getting trampled on by, by people or something. It'll say, hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm getting trampled on. And, and, and your, your love of self will tell you that. Uh, so it's useful. But the trick is, which way up are you going to do it? Which is the most important thing? So this is down here in hell is loving ourselves above all. And love of the world doesn't mean just, ah, oh, what a wonderful, beautiful, you know, the hills are alive, you know. It's not that kind of thing. It talks about uh, materialism, and it's particularly loving wealth more than you love other people. And you can think of situations, can't you, or you see them in, on TV or whatever, where it comes down to a decision between, is it more important? I mean, th I think about that figure of, of Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, who's had people in his life... But, you know, the whole banking thing was, was more important. And he really doesn't care about Cratchit. You know, the money is more important than the neighbor. That's a perfect picture of that kind of hill hell, so to speak, to coin a phrase. Um, uh, and it has a kind of falsity in it. It doesn't mean that loving the world is bad. It means that loving the world, which is a scriptural term, as we'll see in a bit, more than you love the neighbor, more than you love the Lord. Uh, that's a particular kind of hell. Okay, we'll get some more on, onto that chart in a little bit. But, and the green is action. Uh, if you also see this, uh, let me see if I can write some more up here. I don't know if this will be legible. But the red could be called the heart. On, on both ends, it's like the heart. The blue on both sides is the mind. So it's a picture of, of a human being kind of thing. And the green in the middle is words and deeds, to put it sort of scripturally, in, on both sides. That's what it is. So on the negative side, when I think about uh, you know, movies with villains and criminals and, and people like that, isn't it sort of a thing that you have some people who are kind of the evil mastermind, the, the genius who, who thinks of and plots and all this other stuff. And then you have some people who just, they're the bone breakers. You know, they don't do the thinking. It's just, hey, you know, go take care of that guy. And then they'll go take care of, you know. So they're the action. So the green on the hell side is the action on behalf of evil, on behalf of the heart and mind that are in evil. And the green on the good side is the hands and feet of, of heaven. You know, it's there are people in heaven. Fascinating descriptions that Swedenborg gives. They don't particularly much care to learn. They're not philosophers. They don't sit about reasoning and pondering the mysteries of God. You know, they just like to get stuff done. They don't particularly want to think about it. Just tell them what to do. And so every so often, higher angels have to come down and sort of keep them on the, you know, no, you're going this way. And then they just, no, those are my marching orders. That's what someone told me a thousand years ago. That's what I do. And, and that's the type of people who are there on that outside. And so you see this whole thing together 
is like a human form, only the hell version is inverted. You know, it's com completely upside down. <clears throat> Let's read some scriptures with that sort of picture in mind, shall we, friends? Let's go to the middle of your Bible. I want to go to Psalms. And part of what I'm thinking about is the nature of hell, but I'm also thinking about how does it, how is it a blessing? How does the Lord use it? Look at Psalm 23. And isn't verse 5, this is a very familiar psalm to a lot of people, but isn't verse 5 amazing? This beautiful psalm about how the Lord is my shepherd, he takes care of me, he does all these wonderful things. In verse 4, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. You know, I'm not afraid of it, the Lord is with me. And then this wonderful verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, wait a minute. What would be even more reassuring to me would be you prepare a table before me in the absence of my enemies. What, you know, how is that a nice thing? To, oh, by the way, you know, wouldn't you love it if your spouse or some loved one said, by the way, I invited three of your worst enemies over for dinner. Is that good? You know? Just, I thought it would make for interesting conversation. Yeah. So what, what is going on that the Lord would prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies? Well, think about Moses in the presence of his enemies. <coughs> Moses is strengthened, nourished, like he gets, he gets stronger, right? A table, he, he's, he's getting fed and nourished by these horrible... You know, he probably felt sick every day having to go in there and talk to Pharaoh. And yet he's being strengthened to lead the people and he's being blessed by it. And all the children of Israel are being blessed by it. What an amazing thing to say. Okay, and you see the end there, you know, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, it's the, the presence of the enemies help. The Lord permits this for one reason, because it helps good people go to heaven. It's a fabulous lesson in how not to be. You know, it's a, it's a good example of like, oh, I see that's not so pleasant. And I see that in, in someone else. And I see that in myself, you know, and it helps you get purified and so on. Uh, have a look at Psalm 55. We'll move a little more quickly through some of these scriptures now. But uh, mm, 55 verse 15. Hmm. Let death seize them. Mm. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Okay, now that's pretty clear, and I don't think anybody's too surprised by that, that this teaches, as many other passages too, that wickedness, that evil is what drags you down into hell. Uh, evil is actually heavy, and, and it takes you down uh, to hell with it, uh, and it, it drags them down into hell. Uh, look at Psalm 139, though. Mm -hmm. Nice little thing in there. Mm -hmm. Look at start at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? So and, speaking to God. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. The Lord is in hell. He, he, is, he is present in hell. If, if I make my bed in hell, the Lord is... Uh, it might be tempting to think... I think some people even think that there's one giant 
devil and then there's God and they're equally powerful and then they battle like some old Japanese movie or something. But uh, that's not what's going on, actually. The devil means the aggregate of hell together. And uh, the Lord is more powerful than all that. And the Lord is present. He, he's present in hell. Hell is the way that he wishes it uh, to be, even, even though he's sad about the choices that people made. His hand is there. And go ahead. Oh, I forget where we are. Verse 9. Oh, yeah. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The basic gist being that you can't, there's, there's nowhere from which, you know, like if our minds and hearts are down here in hell somewhere, the Lord can pull us up out of there. He, he knows he's there. It's like you haven't drifted so far away that you, you, you've gone off the map and there's no way to, to bring you back. Now, let's uh, flip ahead a little bit here because there's a related scripture. Uh, can you go through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, then you get to the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. I want Amos, which is the third of those minor prophets. Uh, Amos chapter 9, because there's a similar type of statement in here. Verse 2, Amos chapter 9, verse 2. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Yes, okay, so in other words, the Lord's hand can reach into heaven, you know, it's not out of his reach. It's like he can, mm -hmm. he can, he can get people from there. Okay, uh, let's go back toward the Psalms, if you will. Just wanted to read that related statement. Let's go into Proverbs, which is to the right of the Psalms. And I want to go to Proverbs 27, because this fits with what we were talking about last week. If you weren't here last week, we were talking about just this unending development and increase of heaven. Always more people rolling in. It gets larger and larger and larger and larger, and larger over time. Well, the same is unfortunately true of hell. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 20. Amazing statement right there. Hell and destruction are never full. Mm. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Yeah, do you see it's making a parallel between hell and destruction are never full. Like, it, you know, the recruitment team is working and, and hell gets bigger and bigger over time. And, and destruction, they're, they're never full. It, it always keeps growing. And isn't it interesting that it correlates that with the eyes of man are never satisfied. One of the reasons that these feelings that Swedenborg describes as loving ourselves and loving the world are condemned by the Lord is because they're bottomless pits. They're unsatisfiable. If you love yourself more than anybody else on the planet, you're not satisfied with having a bunch of competition or, you know, I mean, you, you want, you know, you want to be greater than anybody. And, and Swedenborg says, if you really see that whole thing unfold, you want to be greater than God. You'd like to dethrone God and take over the universe. You know, we really have that in us. It's amazing. But so one of the reasons that that's a hellish feeling is that that will never you will never be satisfied, you know, as hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never, never satisfied. 
those hellish desires. And we've certainly seen more examples in our world, have we not, friends, of that galloping love of money. There's no matter how much you've got, more, more, acquire. It just doesn't matter who gets trampled, what happens, more, 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 more. It's a bottomless pit. It's incredible. Uh, the Lord wants to shield us from this because by nature, it's frustrating. You can't have what you want because what you want is impossible. You're never satisfied. So there's always a degree of frustration in choosing. That's why the Lord said, hey, you know, the people in heaven are very well satisfied. Their cup, cup is full, shaken down and overflowing and all, you know, it's a place of abundance, not this sort of craving for something you can never have. That's part of what makes hell hellish. Uh, let's turn to the right and go to, um, oh, I want to go back into the minor prophets again. Can we handle it, we dear can. reader? Mm -hmm. Can we find Habakkuk? We can. You think? We yes. can? Yeah. Okay, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. It comes before Zephaniah. So uh, if you want to get to the New Testament and go back, it's like five back, I think. Um, chapter... Oh, let's go to chapter two, shall we? Okay. Hmm. Look at verse five. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine... Interesting statement. He is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Oh. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. Cannot be satisfied. Isn't that interesting that it mentions that in the same breath with wine? Some people drink a half a glass of wine, they leave it on the mantle, you know. But some people get a little out of control with that, you know. It's, you, it cannot be satisfied. Look at that. Go on. And... Uh, he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Now, you see what I'm talking about? This is what Swedenborg's talking about, that hellish desire that the Lord wants to protect us from is this galloping thing that just cannot be, be satisfied. And what that means by death there is spiritual death, you know, that you enlarge your desire like hell and, and you're like death and cannot be satisfied. thought that was powerful. Uh, let's actually go to the left from there, back to Ezekiel, which just comes up after you get through Daniel. I want to go to Ezekiel 31. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Isn't that amazing? Cannot be satisfied. Uh, now, we talked about mountains, didn't we? Now, so there are two types of... It, it, it's kind of weird that in the shadow upside down world, the lower you go, it's called higher mountains or something, you know, because it's an upside down world. So the mountains are the lowest thing and then the hills are higher. You know what I mean? It's all upside down. But that's the language of scripture. And listen to this in 31. Let's uh, pick up a verse 10, shall we? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height, and it set its top among the thick boughs, and its heart was lifted up in its height. Yes, okay, so there's all these images just being lifted. Lifted up sounds good. Be nice to be uplifted. But in Scripture, it's often a bad thing. It, it means that you're proud or you, you know, you've lifted yourself up. Go on. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations, and he shall surely deal with it. Oh, yes, and I being have, dealt with. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I have driven it out for its wickedness. Wickedness, you see? 
and aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains. On the mountains. And in all the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. I think these green areas at the center, the lowest part of heaven, the highest part of hell, are the valleys. I think that's what's meant, you know, if it's in a negative sense, this is the valley. If it's in a positive sense, it's on the heaven side, the lowest heaven. Go on. On its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens, and all the beasts of the field will come to its branches. And listen to this. So that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height. You see, it's about trying to cut down that pride. The Lord is trying to cut down our pride. I don't know if you're getting the sort of metaphorical language in here, but trees are people, and he's talking about that pride. And so the whole purpose of this is so that you don't exalt yourself because, oh, look how tall I am, you know. That, no, that doesn't get you into heaven. Go on. Nor set their tops among the thick boughs, mm. that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. Mm. For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth. Oh, the depths, see, that's down. Mm -hmm. Among the children of men who go down to the pit. Mm. Thus says the Lord God, In the day when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers, and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the, ma I made the nations shake at the sound of its fall. Mm, when that I picture of the giant tree coming down, all the nations <laughs> shake. Yep. When I cast it down to hell, together with those who descend into the pit, mm. and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the depths of the earth. Now, do you see the idea? Oh, let's do one more. They also went down to hell with it, with those slain by the sword. That's not the first time we've seen that tonight. There was another one about slain with the sword, wasn't there? Go on. And those who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations. Yes, so do you see that idea that, that, that all that drink water, isn't that interesting? So partly why I would quote that, it's a rather obscure passage, but when you start thinking in terms of a framework of hell, you start to understand what is high, what's the valley, what's being cast down, and, and the ones that drink water are the ones that are in touch with the truth, you know, and they're more right-sized. And isn't it interesting at the end of verse 16 that they're comforted, uh, you know, that this evil presence is, is gone, just the way the children of Israel got away from Pharaoh and their captors and they saw them all dead and so forth. And I'm not saying that dead is great. I'm just saying it's a spiritual commentary that there's a relief of being away from that evil influence. Uh, let's go into the New Testament. We've got a few things to look at in here, not as many. Let's go to Matthew, the first of the Gospels that come up there. 16, verse 18. This is just about Peter. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Yes, Hades is hell. And I will give the you the... Um, I just thought that was enough there that, okay. in other words, the protection from heaven, like Peter, you know, the, the, the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And look at uh, later in that same chapter, 
Look at verse 26. It's kind of amazing that this comes just... Oh, we started, have to start at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. See, that's the opposite of that boasting sort of vainglory love of self. The, the denying self, that lower self. Go on. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Mm. But whoever loses his life for my sake will and here find it. Is. it. Mm. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yes. So we read that tonight partly because this second hell there is a love of the world. And when it's talking about losing your own soul and gaining the whole world... You know, that's, okay, great. Okay, you're incredibly wealthy. Uh, but you had to trample so many people to get there that you lost your own soul in the course of that. That's where the, the Lord is pleading with us not to go. Okay, and look at Matthew 23. Ooh, this is, ooh, he really says something. Now, in Matthew, the whole of Matthew chapter 23 is the Lord haranguing the Pharisees and I think it's just like those 10 plagues on the Egyptians, trying to turn them around, trying to turn them around, trying to turn them around. But listen to what he says in verse 15. Woo! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Yes. Isn't that lovely? It's a good evangelization program, you know. Uh, so what that tells you is that it's possible, uh, you know, like hell will be recruiting and uh, it's possible to be twice as hellish as someone else. You know, the Lord sort of reveals various things in there about what's going on inside and just a terrible, terrible thing to say people who believe they're acting in the name of religion and everything. And then the Lord says that, that you, you, you go over land and sea and all you're doing is making someone even more hellish than you are. That's your big, big accomplishment for your proselytization. Uh, look at Mark. Turn into the next gospel. Mark chapter 16. There are many, many stories in the New Testament about the Lord's power over demons, but I thought this one was just a fun little one to mention in verse 9. Now, when he rose early... This was Jesus, yep. Early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Seven demons. Now, does the Lord have a problem with how he can deal with hell? You might think if you had seven demons, which I take to mean seven whole sort of categories of hellishness in yourself in different parts of you, you know, maybe she's got the full, you know, Maybe she loves evil and is worldly and is nasty to people and she was doing bad things. And, you know, seven of those, the Lord is still able to turn things around even so much that it's very powerful to me that she is the first one to see the Lord she, she, after he's resurrected. She really understands who the Lord is, can tell that he's resurrected. So doesn't that speak a little bit, friends, to the fact uh, I didn't pick out the scripture, uh, but um, where it says that the angels 
have more joy over one sinner who repents than 99 just people who need no repentance. Uh, and you think about how some people, isn't it true, like you might think about why does the Lord allow this or that to happen? Why do people get into such a mess? You know, whatever it is, uh, just bad things, bad habits, bad ways of living and so on. But you think about people who are reformed from those things. How powerful are they to help other people who are in that situation? You know, other people who are squeaky clean, just persons who need no repentance might go into the, you know, uh, into the project or something and try, try to talk to somebody and say, well, no, I, I know what you're going through. They would just say, you don't know what I'm going through. You know, but somebody who's been there. Uh, it's so powerful when you get somebody who's been through the same thing that you've been through. There's a really basic way that the Lord helps people. So a blessing that he brings out of people who've been in evil is that if they get reformed, they're very powerful forces for good. Um, let's go to oh, 2 Timothy 3. Okay, so we go through Acts and the epistles. Uh, Timothy is shortly before the Hebrews. And I want to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Start at the first verse there. This is just one of these wonderful Pauline lists of evils. <laughs> and um, but, go ahead. but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. And what will these people be like? Look at the first thing on the list. For men will be lovers of themselves. Yes, there it is. That's what Swedenborg means by love of self. He's not talking about, well, you need to take care of it. We do need to take care of ourselves. You know, he's not talking about eating well and getting, you know, doing some exercise now and then. He's talking about where that's your chief thing. You know, I love that sort of thing. Don't they have that where your guy's sitting at the restaurant uh, talking to the woman about himself at great length and everything, and then he finally says, enough about me. What do you think of me? You know. Um, now go on. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud. Now look at that, love of self and love of money. Right there, boom, boom. Two big problems that the, the, the Lord says. It's not that, I know it says that love of money is the root of all evil, but it means when it trumps everything else, you know, uh, when it's not in context. And when push comes to shove, uh, I don't know why this example is coming to mind, but I saw this clip recently, maybe you saw it too, friends, of this, uh, I, I think it was in the Australian Open, the tennis match. It was just so great, where uh, the one guy serves to the other guy, you know, they're in this battle and everything. The guy serves, and the, and the line ref says, out, and the other guy says, it was in. And he says, you should challenge, and he tries to get the other guy to challenge. And finally, he says to the ump himself, I challenged the, the call, you know, <laughs> it was it, it was a good serve, you know, and the whole, you hear this nervous kind of laughter in the whole, like nobody, the umpire, nobody can believe it, like, what are you doing, you know, <laughs> like this is supposed to be this competition, and he's got this great smile on his face, it's, it's just a beautiful thing, you know, like that's putting something ahead of yourself, and the world just responds, like, that is so awesome. You know, it's just one little thing, but just to say, hey, you know, it's so awesome. Go on. Boasters, yes. proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. That's a, watch that one. Mm -hmm. unth 
unthankful, unholy, unloving, oh. uh, unforgiving, oh. slanderers, oh. without self-control, oh boy. brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. And listen to this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yeah, see what I'm talking about? That's what love of the world is talking about. It's not that pleasure is a bad thing. The Lord sent all sorts of pleasant things, but it's loving it more than you love God. You know, when push comes to shove, it says, no, I'll stick with this. I'm, I'm not going with what God wants me to do. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Turn away. That's right. So this is a little litany of what people are like. Let's turn the pages through Hebrews and get to James. There's another little riff in James chapter 3, about the tongue. There's a, there's a great bit about the tongue and how much trouble it, <laughs> it gets people into, uh, you know. Uh, let's read verses 5 and 6. Oops, sorry. James 3, 5 and 6. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Yes, isn't it interesting that it would refer to fire and trees and so forth? Go on. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. A world of iniquity. Not a beautiful <laughs> description. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set, and it is set on fire by hell. By hell. Isn't that interesting? It sets on fire all these other things, and it is set on fire by hell. Doesn't that give you an idea of what that hell fire is? It flows into your tongue, and then you, you know, just comes flying out of your mouth, you know? And uh, wow, you know, a world of iniquity. <laughs> it's a great little thing. And so I would say that the tongue, like words and deeds, that highest level of hell is about the world words and deeds and that's where you can you can do a lot of evil it's set on fire by what's coming up from below here uh, but you can do a lot of damage just with just with words and uh, turn to the right and you'll go through first and second Peter get to first John chapter 2 and this is sort of a classical it's actually our last scripture for the evening about love of the world the way scripture talks about this let's look at verse 15. Do not love the world yes. or the things in the world. Mm. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yes, you see, so it's talking about, it's not talking about, wow, you know, the, the, you know, the, the mountains are so beautiful. You know, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about something that it has just taken over your life. You're not thinking about God. You're just doing this thing that has to do with the world and your wealth and trampling people and so on. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, mm. the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. Mm. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. So that's a little riff So uh, about uh, loving the world. Okay, so a few closing thoughts, good friends. Uh, it is very interesting to me. So first of all, we got to talk about freedom. We've talked about freedom last week, and it's so basic. What we talked about last time was that the Lord 
has structured the universe in such a way that we can never uh, make anything our own that we didn't freely choose. We're incapable of imposing anything on anybody else. So it has to be the case that people freely choose what they choose. If anybody's going to be good, if anybody's going to be loving or have truth in their mind, they have to choose it. That's the only way to really get that into their heart and mind. And if that's a real free choice, then choosing the opposite has to be on the menu. It's interesting to me that everything that hell has is just something from the Lord upside down. You know, uh, it all actually comes from the Lord, but it just gets perverted and twisted upside down. So love of self is not a bad thing but it's just in the wrong place. Swedenborg says that the way we're supposed to be is that we have love, God, love of God at the top and then love of, neighbor, love of the neighbor in the middle and then our love of ourselves, our love of the world is like our legs and our love of ourself is like the soles of our feet. You just keep it all the way down. In fact, when it says that Jesus steps on the serpent with his heel, that's what it's talking about. The serpent is that lowest sort of sensory level of ourselves and it's just sort of have that all the way down at the bottom and just keep your foot on it. He, you notice he doesn't kill the serpent, uh, but just keep it under control. Keep your foot on it. That's supposed to be on the outside. So you see, when you make just an overwhelming love of yourself or an overwhelming love of, you know, galloping love of money, you can never get enough and you don't care whether you trample people, you know, you don't care what you have to do to get it. You're just going to get as much as you can possibly get. Uh, how upside down that is. And then you may have some love of God, but it's like if push comes to shove, that's out the window fast. You know, like, well, I don't, you know. I don't. Pharaoh may have started out that whole process with some love of God, but, by the, but he says even at the beginning, I don't know who this God is, and I don't know why I should do what he says. No, it, it's, um, so you see there's this upside downness. And people are placed in heaven or hell according to their degree of opposition to the opposite. Um, the Lord says it in that one uh, healing miracle. He says, do you want to be made well? Uh, the Lord wants to be able to heal us of this, but it's totally just up to us what our choice is. Um, but I, and I don't know if I can show it to you, but, but the, uh, the, the Lord's love, his mercy, he loves the evil spirits. In, in a way, it's exactly the same as his love for the angels. It, it doesn't make any difference. You know, his sun shines on the, on the good and on the evil, and his rain is on the just and on the unjust, as Scripture says. Uh, he doesn't play favorites. And his love reaches down into hell, as we read tonight, and he shapes it all according to, okay, you're, you're about love, but it's an evil love, so you'll be in the heart there. Okay, and you're more about the mind. You're about that twisted mind and the falsity and uh, love of the world. So I'll put you over here and you're more about the action. So I'll put you up here and I'll make this whole thing and I'll allow this uh, not to be, uh, you know, a constant torment to heaven. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He only allows hell to bless the good. It doesn't feel like a blessing. The children of Israel didn't feel blessed when they were chased by Pharaoh and the soldiers, you know. Uh, but 
And I imagine the book of Revelation, you know, when they're attacked and everything, it doesn't, doesn't feel great. But the Lord says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Uh, the Lord has good people safe, and it's not just that they survive the attack. They get better. They learn from it. The Lord prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. So hell, although it doesn't, the last thing it wants to do, it hates the Lord, it hates good people, wants to destroy heaven, wants to conquer the whole thing, lives in hope that one day there'll be an uprising or something. But uh, the fact is they serve. They serve a useful purpose. Uh, they serve for contrast. They serve to develop uh, good people and regenerate them and everything. So they're like the shadow of this good thing that is up here. And the Lord holds the two in balance because what we may talk about next time is where we live in the middle between these two. With one, you know, you, that picture of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, you know, that's kind of a picture of where we are in this equilibrium between the two. The Lord carefully balances them so that we are not overly swayed by one side or the other so that everybody can make their own free choice. So, um, and truly, without the possibility of going to hell, there would be no possibility of partnership with the Lord. If the Lord made everybody little tin soldiers and they're all good and he just lines them all up, there's no partnership, there's no exchange. What the Lord wants to do is this creative thing everybody who he works with is something a little different results than from anybody else. And so that partnership absolutely hinges on human freedom. So the Lord tolerates hell. He loves hell. He works with hell. He tries to ease it for people. You may have heard me say a few weeks ago, I've even been astounded by the teaching that Swedenborg gives, that when the Lord foresees, unfortunately, that someone may go to hell, he will actually make their life in this world more enjoyable. Uh, you know, it's just constant love and mercy uh, pouring forth from the Lord and trying to work with people in all these different states. So it is the Lord's world, world as Swedenborg says in Heaven and Hell, the Lord is the God of hell as well as heaven. It, 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 he is in charge of the whole thing. So in closing, hell is the mirror opposite of heaven. We go there. If we love evil so single-mindedly that we hate and attack what is good. Before that point, we can still turn around if we seek the Lord's help because he would rather have us choose heaven. Thank you, friends. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for revealing to us the nature of evil and what is false. It wishes of its own accord to hide, but you have revealed it. In the pages of your word, you have shown us what the nature of it is so that we can search our own hearts and see what is not of you in there and work to come closer to you. We thank you, Lord, for your power over the hells there are so many evil spirits that by ourselves we could never conquer even one of them. But with your help, we can be led forth out of slavery just as the children of Israel were led forth out of Egypt to go toward you in the Holy Land. Our Father, who art in the heavens, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so that we may escape hell. Thank <laughs> you.